My name's Tony, uh, pastor here at Wellspring. Excited to see you, excited to be here with you. If you're new or visiting, checking us out, we're glad to have you. Uh, if you are a kid and you want to hang out with some other kids, uh, Miss Jeannie is over there. Feel free to join her. She wants to provide an awesome Sunday morning experience where you can learn a little bit more about Jesus and what it looks like to follow him. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we got a, this is the beginning of Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday. There's a lot of things going on in life for our body this next week. Uh, so we'll have a Good Friday service on uh, Friday at 6.30, and then Easter Sunday, and then we'll have uh, launch a series called Cultural Conversations. This is a sort of a way of how does Jesus speak into cultural moments that we're going through. So we're going to talk about keto. We're going to talk about CrossFit. We're going to talk about superhero movies. We're going to talk about all kinds of things that are actually in the cultural conversation. And the hope is that it's a space where we can invite folks that are inside or outside the church to come, check it out, hear about, ah, what would Jesus have to say about something that is live in their life? And the point is to sort of do something that's like, oh, huh, what would Jesus have to say about those things? Uh, they're not sort of in the normal orbit of a church service and trying to figure out, okay, what does that look like? So I just encourage you, if you're able, invite someone in uh, to experience what God is doing here in this place. Now, I want to start this morning. We're in traveling through the Gospel of John. We've been doing this for a while. We're in John 12. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. I want to start with just a really brief comment, set the stage a little bit. So one of the things that's clear in John 12, right, is, and I think in our lives, we recognize this, you can only start following Jesus or approach Jesus from where you are, right? The story you're living in, the family background you come from, right? You know this. Like you can only approach him from where you are, how you were raised in the family shapes, how you seek him, how you approach him. This is as true today as it was 2000 years ago. So if you're a, a boy or a girl, a man or a woman in first century Israel, you have some certain hopes that you're living in, right? You, it's the Passover, it's the spring. People are coming down to Jerusalem and they're thinking a lot about the Exodus, and this is an anchoring story of the Jewish people. They're thinking about, man, you remember when Moses and God did this cool thing and overthrew Pharaoh? And then you're thinking, maybe God could do that again, right? Because you're in the first century, you're ruled by Rome, and you don't like it, right? You don't like Rome. You don't like the way they are oppressing and not very nice. So you're thinking, maybe they'll do that again. This is one of the anchoring stories you're living in. So when you see Jesus ride into Jerusalem, you have a certain response, a hope that comes to the surface, like, oh, here's the moment. Here is the moment. He's going to do it just as Moses did with God. It's going to happen again. And you respond a particular way. This is how John tells the story. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this side, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. All right, so verse 12, you have this great crowd gathering for the festival. The festival is Passover. Remember, this is Exodus. This is Pharaoh. This is the Hebrews. Josephus, who's a first century historian, says that sometimes in the first century, there could be as many as 3 million people that would descend on Jerusalem. Josephus can be known for exaggeration. So maybe that number is a little less, but there's a lot of people there. And we learn also in verse 17 that there are people are there who saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus, right? So you have a lot of moving pieces. People are showing up for various reasons, but I want to add a couple of reasons for maybe why a number of people uh, would be at uh, sort of circling around the great crowd that's there, right? So you have the River Jordan, who's over here. So this is on the eastern edge. So you have the Jordan River. Uh, this is a basic geography lesson. Uh, you have uh, Jerusalem over here. Can you see that? Ish. All right. You have Bethany is right here. And then Galilee is kind of like up here. So what we see in the Gospel of John is that Jesus makes lots of trips to Jerusalem. So there's lots of opportunities for people to get to know him. So he's, in chapter 2, he comes from Galilee down to Jerusalem. This is his first time here, right? So he comes, he starts talking about the temple and the temple being remade in three days. And they're like, he, they're like, ah, you can't remake the temple. That took us 46 years. Uh, and then he goes back to Galilee. Then chapter five happens. So there's another festival, right? So this is like a major theme of John. Now he comes to Jerusalem again. So this is chapter two. This is chapter five. He comes, he heals someone creates all kinds of controversy. People are like, what? You can't do that. It's the Sabbath. Then he goes back to Galilee. And then in chapter seven, he comes back again. And now he goes at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is his third pilgrimage feast, which is 84 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he teaches from chapter seven to chapter 10, all about uh, how he's like, come to me all who are thirsty and I will satisfy your souls. He says, I am the light of the world, right? Three chapters, right? This is seven through 10 are all in Jerusalem. He's creating all kinds of controversy. By the end of chapter 10, people want to stone him, right? So then he goes over to the other side of the Jordan. But then he's over here and then guess what happens? He hears that his friend Lazarus is dying. So he gets a note and he's like, well, I guess we need to go back. Now they go to Bethany, right? So now they're in Bethany. None of his disciples want to go with him because there's so much tension in the air. They're afraid they're going to die. Philip even says, oh, well, I guess we'll follow you. We will die with you. He comes back here, right? This is chapter 11, not 111. Chapter 11. So he goes back to Bethany. This is where he then raises Lazarus from the dead. So Lazarus is raised from the dead, chapter, or verse 17. All these people see it. But look, Bethany and Jerusalem are close to each other, only two miles apart. So now there's more tension that comes out. So much so that where does he go? He goes back over here again. But then there's a party in his honor in Bethany. 
right? So what does he do? Oh, well, I'll just go back to Bethany. This is the beginning of chapter 12. So he ends up at this party in his honor on Saturday night. People are celebrating him. And then John tells us in verse 12, the next day. So they just had this big party in his honor. And then the next morning he goes into Jerusalem and surprise, surprise, there's this huge crowd of people. But when you've been with us and John, you've seen, oh, he has spent so much time in Jerusalem. He's created all this controversy. He's raised them from the dead two miles outside of Jerusalem. Oh, I guess it kind of makes sense that people would come and see what he is doing. He's coming into Jerusalem. And then how they respond is actually really important. So I'm going to do a little riddle, a little game with you. So if tomorrow morning you woke up and there was a tree in your house and it had lights on it, and over the fireplace there were socks and they had red and green colors, and there was presents under the tree, would you know what day it was? Yeah, you'd know. Oh, it's Christmas. Duh. Right? That's how my daughter loves to respond these days. Duh. In the first century, this is a duh moment, what happens right now. If they said, someone's going to quote Psalm 118, someone's going to quote Zechariah and come into Jerusalem, the way they respond is this moment where everyone is like, duh, they're welcoming the king. That is what is happening right now. They are welcoming the king into Jerusalem. We know this for a few reasons. Psalm 118 is one of the first clues. This is how it reads. No, Jesus, not mommy. There you go. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? The blessed one, the coming one, that is the Messiah in the first century. They're thinking the Messiah is coming, right? So they cite Psalm 118. They're saying the Messiah is coming. And then verse 25, it says, save us. Do you see that? Is it still up there? Uh, Verse 25 in Psalm 118 says, save us. That is a direct translation of the word Hosanna, right? So verse 12, Hosanna, that means save us. So they're simply quoting what is going on in uh, Psalm 118, save us, the coming one, the Messiah, And then verse 27, right? They have these bows, bows, however you say that word. I never use it in modern English. And um, they have these bows, right? They're bows with uh, palm branches and they're shaking them saying, Hosanna in the highest. These they would have stored from the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in the fall. Because when you build a booth in your house, you would cover the top with palm branches, So they save them during the year and they bring them out and they're like, the king is coming, grab the palm branches and they start shaking them and citing 118, Psalm 118. There's more going on here. See, every morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would read through Psalms 113 to 118. And when they got to verse 25 of Psalm 118, when it said, Hosanna, save us, guess what they would do? They would take out their palm branch and they would shake it three times. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. That was a part of tabernacles every morning. Right? So then it's actually super intuitive, right? 
that it was natural for the crowd to repeat this cry that they said in the fall at Tabernacles as Jesus is coming in as they want to welcome their king. It's also Passover, right? So they're marinating in the story of the Exodus. God is going to come and rescue them. They're like, he's here. How exciting. He's going to overthrow Rome, who's not all that nice to us and kind of rules us with a heavy hand. Overthrow them. Yes. And it's probably because of this that in 14 and 15, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey and not a war horse. When the conquering king would approach a city, what he would ride was a war horse. You would never catch a king in the Near East entering a, a, a major city saying, I'm coming on a donkey. You just wouldn't. Beasley Murray has this longer quote. I'm going to read it. It's not projected, so I just invite you to listen. The evangelist stating at this point in the narrative that Jesus procured a donkey on which to ride into Jerusalem emphasizes the intention of Jesus to correct a false messianic expectation. For to enter the city on a donkey instead of on a horse, which was associated with or by Jews with war, was itself a demonstration of the peaceable nature of the mission of Jesus. And the relation of the event to Zechariah 9.9, this is the quote, right, makes the motive explicit. And Zechariah 9.9 through 10 describes the joyous coming of the King Messiah. He is righteous, gentle, bringing salvation, riding on a donkey, proclaiming peace to the nations. Nothing further from a zealot's view of the Messiah could be imagined. Right? They're imagining overthrow. Jesus comes on a donkey, referring back to Zechariah saying, yeah, you got it right. I am the king, but the way I come is so different than you imagine. So this is sort of, you know, 2000 years later with a lot of scholars working in libraries, trying to make sense of all this, right? This is what we start with. But they tell us in verse 16, right? Even Jesus' disciples, they don't get it. Right? Let alone the crowd let alone the Pharisees who are like, what is going on? You're stealing my congregants, you know? They're all going to Jesus. They're moving towards him and away from them and they don't like it. John tells us that it's not until Jesus dies and is resurrected and glorified that they actually get what was happening that Sunday morning. That's basically what happens on Palm Sunday in the Gospel of John. I think the question for us, right, 2,000 years later, is how does this relate to our everyday life with God? You're like, it's a great parade. I'm so glad you shared about it. How does that actually impact my life today? Palm Sunday is a fascinating time because what we know is that in a few days, Jesus is going to be tortured and crucified. We know that one of his best friends, one of his followers is going to deny even knowing him in the person of Peter. Judas is going to betray him for money. So on one level, right, Palm Sunday is this beautiful celebration. Oh, cool. On another level, red in light of Good Friday, it's kind of hard to get too excited about it, isn't it? Red in light of Easter, where God defeats death. You can see how incongruent the people's hopes are with what Jesus actually does. 
One of the sort of massive highlights of this incongruity is in the Gospel of Luke. So everyone's shouting and yelling and waving their palm branches. And Luke tells us this, Jesus weeps. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. As they're excited for, you know, to ride in the wake of Jesus' victory over Rome, Jesus knows he is going to his death. He weeps over the misplaced expectations of the people. And if Good Friday is a window into the profound love of God, and Easter is a window into the profound uh, presence and hope that God brings in the world, I think Palm Sunday is a day when we really need to ask ourselves, who are we worshiping? Because when you look at good or look at Palm Sunday, what you see is that a lot of people think they're worshiping Jesus, and then as soon as she shifts the script, right, this very crowd that's there celebrating him is the very crowd that in a few days when he says, oh, I'm going this way, not that way, they say, crucify him. And they trade him for a criminal, a murderer named Barabbas. Palm Sunday invites us to, I think, actually look internally and say, who are we really worshiping today? In our everyday life with God, if we look at our lives, whose kingdom are we participating in and for whose glory? First thing I want to talk about is just whose kingdom. So what we see in this text. So the crowds are clearly focused on an earthly kingdom, right? They're wanting to ride Jesus's coattails to military victory so they can eat at banquet halls and have the best things in life. And as soon as Jesus' script diverges from their own, they bail on him. Right? And you see this contrast between their relationship to Jesus and Jesus' relationship to the Father is just profound. Throughout John, what we see is that Jesus is constantly, oh God, whatever you want, I'll do it. Just tell me what to say and I'll say it. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? This is the constant frame of Jesus' relationship to the Father. Even though it leads to a cross, even though it leads to him giving his life for the life of the world. Now, most of us, right, in our cultural moment, we're not thinking about, gotta grab my palm branch, you know? We don't have it like in a closet in our house, like ready to be like, oh, here comes Jesus, grab the palm branch. But I think for us, in our cultural moment, we hear on a daily and probably multiple times a day, you, 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 you are the king of your kingdom. This is the message of our culture. You are the king of your kingdom. This is why, like in our culture, we think tolerance and judgment are like, Judgment is the worst thing in the world and tolerance is amazing because you don't tell a king in their kingdom what to do with their life. You don't tell a king in their kingdom what is right or wrong. You don't tell them, hey, I think you should adjust here. What are you telling me? 
Right? I am the one who gets to decide about my life. Right? I get to decide, not you. That is, the, that is the primary, if not primary, one of the core narratives of our story in our culture. Right? This is why we have such a distrust of authority in our culture. Who are you going to tell me what to do? Right? This is a massive part of our story and our culture right now. And the truth is, the triumphal entry in this moment, I think, profoundly speaks into it. Because as soon as the script changes and we think, wait, following Jesus isn't about me just sort of bolstering my kingdom. Wait, wait, I, I actually need to submit to the Father as Jesus submits to the Father. Wait, what? Palm Sunday, I think, is an awesome time for us to consider are we willing to let God be the king of the kingdom that we live in and actually follow him? Even if it doesn't lead to good things, or even if it doesn't lead to smiles and, you know, confetti. Are we willing to follow God even when it doesn't feel good? I was trying to think of something like super practical, right? Because that's like 10,000 feet and you nod and then I get super practical and you're like, oh, I don't really like this anymore. Because as a concept, we can all nod to it. But when you actually get into the grit and the dirt of our lives, it starts to get a little harder. I think there's two things that really expose who really is the king of our life. One is time and the other is money. So I want you during this Holy Week to do two things. The first is this. And you can not do it if you want, feel free. I really think this could be a rich experience. At least three times a day over the next five days, maybe you do it mid-morning, lunch, evening, or night. I just want you to take a journal of how you spend your time. Maybe 30-minute or hour increments. If you're at work, totally. I don't care where you're at. If you're doing laundry, at work, binging on Netflix, whatever, just write it down. So three or four times a day, write what you did. And then take 10 or 15 minutes and say to Jesus, all right, this is how I spent my time. What do you think? Is this how you'd want me to spend it? Was I creating space for you, God, and how I spent this time? Would you like me to shift it at all? Was I creating space for my brothers and sisters so that I could be supportive of them and they could support me? Was there space where I could be a blessing in the world outside of my little circle and my friendships, love my enemies? Was I doing those kind of things, God? Whether you're a lawyer or a plumber or an electrician or retired, we can all do this exercise and we can all say, all right, Jesus, what does it look like for me to participate in your kingdom? Not just live for my own. And then just, if he invites you to change something, change it. Because he is the king of the kingdom, not us. And I would say if you've gone through the whole week and you haven't changed one thing, I would say, I would put up a red flag and say, I'm probably not listening. You're like, I don't even want to hear point two. <laughs> Money. I would also invite you sometime this week to go through your credit card statements, your checkbook, your bank account, in the presence of God, say, God, how do you want me to use this? Am I using this 
in a way that makes sense within your kingdom? Or am I just doing my own thing? And just listen. See what God has to say. And remember, we're not doing this so that we can feel bad about ourselves. We're doing this so that our heart and life is aligned with the kingdom so that we don't get from the sort of celebration and parade of Palm Sunday to then being a part of the crowd that's saying crucify him on Good Friday. So that we know, oh God, I want to align my life with your kingdom. I want to be a part of it. Help me. Because we are broken creatures that are prone to wayward movements. Our hearts move all over the place. And I think God is saying, wants to say to us, hey, let me help you out of it. We are meant to be apprentices of Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus. In order to do that, we need to actually be open to God shifting the way we do life. I think Palm Sunday is a profound challenge to that. But it's not just about whose kingdom. It's also about Whose glory? See, what I just talked about were sort of the mechanisms, the what of we would change, but what about the why? Like, why would we make these decisions? What we see in our text for today is that Jesus submits to the Father, even though it leads to his humiliation. He rides in a donkey, right? That is not the Instagram picture you want. Right? You want the war horse, not the donkey. And he will go up on a cross because he knows it is about the Father's glory, not his own. Right? His motivation in all this, to see God big, to see God elevated, to see God glorified, to see God raised up. The crowd clearly is motivated by some sense of self-interest, right? Because they will turn. As soon as it's no longer about them, like rocking it and riding the gravy train into military victory, they turn. Same with the Pharisees, right? They're clearly just upset that Jesus has a bigger congregation than they do. They're not really about God being glorified. They are about their own fame. This is a massive part of our culture, right? The elevation of the self, the fame of the self, right? This is why you'll go down to Lover's Point on a sunny day and you'll see people standing for 45 minutes trying to take the best selfie that they can post online, right? Because it's all about not actually being present at Lover's Point, but like projecting your image to the world so that they think you are awesome. So much of culture, particularly under like 40, is massively influenced by this. It's about projecting our fame to the world. Oh, look at my life. I think this is why so often the question we ask ourselves is like, what are people going to think if I do this? I don't care if you're 20 or 70. We are really concerned often about what other people think. Because on some deep level, we want to be seen as amazing. We want to be like famous in other people's eyes. Our primary question is not, oh, I wonder what this person thinks of God. It's what do they think of me? And I wonder, what does it look like for us on this Palm Sunday to think more about God being big than us? I was trying to think of like another really uncomfortable on the ground thing of that we could lean into this. And this is kind of what came up. 
There's this massive sort of, I think, fear among many churchgoers about just being honest and open about loving Jesus. Right? So you're at work or you're at the supermarket or you're wherever. You're talking with a family member or a friend and there's this opportunity for you to share about who God is. And you're like, eh, what is this person going to think of me? I'm going to sound crazy. Right? And we back away because we're afraid of what people will think of us. My on-the-ground practical thing is I think this week and the next couple weeks is like one of the best times to invite people to church or to a class or to an Easter egg hunt, which happened yesterday and I heard was awesome. Or into our homes just to be with them. My challenge to you this week, don't be awkward and like, you know, do you see the sunrise this morning? Like, I did. God is good, you know? It's like, come on. Don't be like awkward. But if it comes up, right? If the Spirit gives you an opportunity to be honest about who you love, what you care most about, take it. Regardless of how it's going to, you know, affect what they think of you. I think this is an awesome way for us to be shaped into Jesus' image. Not as a goal, but actually as training so that our hearts are aligned with God so that we are more concerned about God being known than our own fame. If God gives you an opportunity, say yes. And then pay attention afterwards. Man, I was so nervous. I was sweating. I was, oh, yeah, because you're really worried about what someone's going to think of you. Before we enter into uh, worship, it seemed appropriate to take some time uh, on this Palm Sunday to celebrate uh, communion together. To remind us of who we follow. To remind us of who we worship. On the Thursday night of Holy Week, Jesus gathered with his friends, one of whom would betray him, one of whom would deny him. Knowing this, he still says to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he takes some wine, which is at the table. He says, this is my blood, which is shed for you, that your sins might be forgiven. Drink this in remembrance of me. And the next morning, Jesus will give his life. He will die so that we can live. And this is the love, this is the covenant, this is the beautiful relationship that we look at this morning. I think this is also an opportunity when we are looking at whose kingdom we live in and whose glory we live for. I think we can take kind of a transparent moment right now. I'm going to invite the worship team up and I just invite you, take a moment just to be honest with Jesus.
you know, as I was sharing, did you find yourself like just nervous as anything, right? To even try those experiments? Do you find yourself like, I'm not going to do that? And I guess I ask you why. This is the God you serve, who gives himself for you that you might experience life. I invite you just to take a moment of silence. I'm going to pray for us. And what we're going to do is after I pray, we're going to have some folks up here. You're going to come down this middle aisle and then go around the sides. If you're over there, we'll have someone serving over there as well. And the person up here is going to say to you, the body of Jesus. And you will have an opportunity to take that piece of bread and say, Jesus, I choose you. I want my life to be like your life. And then we're going to say the blood of Jesus. You're going to have an opportunity to take that piece of bread and dip it into this communion cup as a way of saying, Jesus, yes. I want my life to be shaped like your life. Now, if you're not so certain about this Jesus person, but you don't want to be awkward and like sit in the pew all by yourself, you can also come forward and just say, hey, I'd like a blessing. And we'll just say a quick blessing over you. Probably something like, you know, may God reveal himself to you as you seek him. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Invite you just to, it's an opportunity to be, sort of make your heart right with God. Jesus, we come before you that we acknowledge that we are imperfect creatures. But God, we also want to love you. In our brokenness, we put ourselves on the throne, but God, we want to crawl off that throne and worship at your feet. God, we are creatures who so easily seek our own fame. But God, today we say, no, we want you, God, to be glorified. God, would you soften our hearts? God, we want to worship you this morning. Move in us. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, that we may love you more, that we may know you and our lives might be aligned with yours.